This episode is brought to you by our friends at Veridesk. Veridesk makes office furniture simple. Seriously, their height adjustable standing desk is one of my favorites and something I use every day in my video production business, especially when I'm editing. It was really the first step to create a happier, healthier me and a more productive workspace. Today, Veridesk has a full line of furniture and accessories for the office and the classroom that are easy to order, assemble, and reconfigure as your needs change. Ready to work elevated? Go to veridesk.com forward slash behind the brand to learn more. Now let's get into our episode. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, a half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark. We're wearing sunglasses. And Brian's riding shotgun. Brian Elliott, welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with the legendary Dan Aykroyd. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, sir. Strong words, but uh, we, you know, like the dinosaur, we've been around a while, so I guess you know, you can you can use the word legend for the T-Rex. It's, it's been around for a while. Well, I believe you've earned it. I mean, you've you've been through it, and I want to talk a little bit about your origin story. I know you have a lot of fans who watch the show, but maybe also some youngsters who are discovering you for the first time. Um, how did you get this job? Well, what job is that? Writer, musician, actor, uh, manufacturer, dancer. Uh, I guess I was, I was fortunate that I had parents who saw a gift in me very early, and they said, you know, this, he, gets, he gets in front of the, the television and he imitates the announcers at three years old. There's something going on here. So they developed it. They put me with uh, psychologists very early to develop my creative skills and visual skills. Uh, and then uh, all the way through, they encouraged me to go into theater and to uh, pursue the, the idea of, of being an actor. So I think it was parental assistance and support. It was also being in a community, li living in a, in, a, in a city that uh, had respect for artists. I lived in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. And so big respect for uh, local theater um, and, um, and with good inst institutions of education there, Ottawa University and Carleton University, great drama program at Carleton University. So um, just feeling my way up, up through that, but support at every level. In high school, I had a great teacher who saved me uh, from being expelled and he put me into theater. And then I worked with uh, the Sock and Buskin group at Carleton University with really great directors and, uh, uh, and then went on to um, uh, start a cable TV show of my own with a partner, and then we went on to do CBC and then joined Second City. So all the way along, I, I was properly uh, supported and, and found my place in all these great institutions. Saturday Night Live, then before that Second City, then Canadian Broadcasting before that, and, um, and the colleges that I went to, Carleton University, uh, and uh, Ottawa Little Theatre, the, the, the schools of, of theatre, basically. So good support from the parental view, good training, being in the right place uh, for what I wanted to do. And I guess that's how I started as a, as a performer. That's amazing. I want to talk about your entrepreneurial life as well, but let's go back in the chronology a little bit. So that's amazing that you had that kind of parental support. Did your folks do kind of traditional kind of stuff uh, or were they? Also Very interesting. My, my, my dad started out as a, at University of Toronto as a road engineer. He, he, he trained as a civil engineer. Very creative. No, well, uh, what he ended up doing was quite creative. He, he ended up working for the National Film Board. He got left school, and in Canada we have the National Film Board, which is a, 
a group of, uh, of, of government um, uh, employees, basically, who were hired to make movies about everything, short films, documentaries, some features. And so my dad was a unit production manager there in the 1950s. When the Queen came to Canada, there was a cross-country tour, and my dad was the person that would have to say, Your Majesty, can we get that again? Can you step off the train again? <laughs> he directed her through her uh, part of her trip, and uh, then the government, there was attrition, and uh, the, the government let him go, and he had no job. But he had just met my mother, and my mother said, well, there's an ad in the paper for you know, a civil engineer. You, you, take a look at it. You know, and, he, and he saw this ad. They wanted you know, civil engineer. Please apply to National Capital Commission in Ottawa. It turned out it was the va vacancy for the chief engineer on the Gatineau Parkway, which is the equivalent to the Blue Ridge Parkway. He I saw him as a kid blast through a granite mountain and run dump trucks and bulldozers and you know, paying cops off on the side to get the loads done. And, and then he, they basically handed him $80 million and said, go build a parkway, Mr. Aykroyd. And he went away and then five years later came back and he said to General Kennedy, who ran the, the National Capital Commission, well, your, your highway's finished. And every cent accounted for, all properly accounted for and properly done. And so he has now in Ottawa, Canada, a national monument to his name. And it's one of the most impressive bodies of road I've ever driven, beautifully banked for motorcycles, granite curbs. And he was, uh, then he went on, of course, uh, to do others. He worked for Privy Council as, uh, as uh, Trudeau's off, uh, office, uh, uh, officer in the, in the uh, Privy Council, the first Trudeau. He was uh, Pierre Trudeau's, um, one of his policy writers, and he wrote the orders in council, eventually my dad did for two ministries um, that were really kind of unheard of in the 60s. The Ministry of Urban Affairs, Canada was growing, and it needed uh, uh, policy to govern their big cities. So my dad was the second busiest pen in the federal government. He wrote that legislation uh, to go into cabinet and then eventually to uh, the House of Commons and ratification. And he also wrote legislation for something called the environment. And back in the 60s, nobody, that, what's your neighborhood where you grow up? It's not the garbage dump in the backyard. Only the Scandinavians were calling the environment to climate and to ecology. And my dad basically wrote a paper uh, distilled 50, you know, 500 pages down into three pages saying, if we don't establish a Ministry of Environment in Canada right now, we're going to have a toxic waste dump in 20 years. So he did that, and he ended up as uh, uh, working for Hard Rock. I hired him in New York City, and uh, my mom worked in wartime production of aircraft fuselages for the, hurricane, for the Hawker Hurricane, and so she was a, an executive secretary to the Minister of Munitions and Supply, and so both of them come from organizational backgrounds, and both of them knew how to write. My mom was a professional executive, you know, typist and shorthand, and my dad wrote all this policy. So when it came time to, to do my writing, screenplay and SNL, I'd seen their model, I'd seen how hard it was that they worked, but how they got the pages produced, you know. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so the Ackroyds, a long line of underachievers, I mean, <laughs> that's crazy, um, the amount of you know, resume you just talked about in a very short amount of time, the achievements, um, obviously, mom, yeah. that has had a huge impact. On I it. saw them work hard, my mom and dad, and I had lots of government jobs myself, and, and I did enjoy government jobs, you know, because you, there were times you could feel productive, but there were also times when you could take your own sweet government time, and you take your time to do something. And now in business, I look for that and go, if people are taking their time, it's their own, they're t better take it on their own time and not on ours. Yeah, well, it gives us time to maybe catch up, right? Or 
gain market shares? We have to. We have to always watch our partners. Uh, you know, and, and especially in, in, in the vodka business and the distribution business, we can't let it go for a second, because uh, it's kind of like the army. You know, uh, you give the, the the general gives an order to the colonel, to the major, to the captain, and then by the pri time the private gets it, it's either mistranslated, forgotten, or there's unwillingness at that rank to do it. So we are always watching for for that. You know, I think anybody who's into a product that requires distribution, real distribution, not online, but real actual, you know, trucks on the road has to watch, make sure that the product gets into the stores. So from about what, what time period did you start feeling more like an entrepreneur? I mean, you sort of, it sounded like you were doing kind of the traditional theatrical or production path for a while, you know, the, the second city, you know, probably uh, for those who don't know, I know a little bit about Second City. Tell people what Second City is. Well, Second City is the premier improvisational uh, company in the world. Um, all kinds of people come out of there. Gilda Radner, John Candy, uh, Eugene Levy, uh, uh, so many great stars uh, have come out of there. It's a farm and, club for, you know. Exactly, yeah. And it's a business. So I, I, can, I think I can tell you that from the first time I was hired um, as, as an actor, I, I entered show business. I had to manage my own career. I had to make my own deals, I had to, you know, set my own terms. Um, so, um, so really, uh, it, it taught me a lot. It taught me, I saw how the producers ran a, uh, ran a business at Second City, how they squeezed blood from a stone, paying talent, and trying to sell drinks and, and, uh, and ice cream sundaes to make sure there was a profit there to keep the place open, and thank God they did. Look, Stephen Colpeo came out of there, all kinds of great stars came out of there. So I think being in, in show business, I got to see, you know, well, there's a bottom line here that has to be reached, and tickets have to be sold. And in order for tickets to be sold, we have to go on the road. So what do we do? We take Catherine O'Hara, myself, um, three or four, I think there were four of, of us in it, and we go on the road, and we traveled in the, in the Second City Touring Company uh, to the Terre Haute Federal Penitentiary uh, in Terre Haute, uh, Indiana, and we played the work farm and the main S, uh, the Security Six level, um, you know, um, uh, theater that they had there for the inmates, might I call it a theater auditorium. And this was part of the word of getting the Second City brand out there and saying this is what we do. We don't only take for ourselves, we are going to go out and bring our show to people who really need it, who really need to laugh. And the press we got from that was, was you know, very, very worthwhile. And it set up Second City as a brand that will do these kind of things in communities. And so... Uh, it really, you know, taught me that you you have to get out into the field for your brand to succeed. Because if you can make it in prison, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> it was a very interesting night when you know when Catherine, you know, crossed her legs. There was a cheer from the uh, from the from the inmates. You know, I don't, you know, they were all mostly male anyway. So I don't remember SNL before you. I mean, what number cast member were you? Well, um, there was no SNL before us. I mean, it was, um, I was uh, with the, the cast from the very beginning with Gilda and, um, and um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jane and Lorraine and uh, Gareth. Yeah, it was us and Chevy. So it was Chevy, Gareth, me, Gilda, Lorraine. Um, Bill came later. Bill, Bill Murray was later, yeah, yeah. Now talk about a brand, like a human as a brand. You see him on T-shirts, you see him on... People put him on the side of cars, you know, he's, he, 
this is someone who really, like, he's kind of like a Kardashian. He has become a brand of comedy, of fun, of golf, of absurdity. You know, you associate anarchy with his image, and uh, I've seen him on holy candles that they sell now. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, him and Prince. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and, and you know, he deserves it. He deserves it, too, because uh, he's a lot of fun. You know? Well, that whole, I mean, the original cast, we could probably talk for three hours about that. Just magic. Um, did you the women were strong. You know, Gilda and Lorraine and, and Jane, they were strong. They were strong, very oh, yeah. great performers. Yeah, I mean, almost like Lucille Ball-esque, where there's just like yeah. power women, power comedians. That's, that's right, and went, on, and went on, of course, to, to establish the tradition for the women we see today, Leslie Jones, Kate McKinnon, Tina Fey, and Amy Poehler. I mean, you can name them all, and I'm, I, I love all their work. I still watch the show when, when, I can, when I'm up at night. <laughs> Did you feel like you made it after you got that show up and running? Well, um, I think... Uh, what we felt was we were established uh, as uh, writers and, and, and actors delivering our generation of humor and definitely Saturday Night Live and its four years um, gave us the, the forum and, uh, and the, the success that enabled us to, to go on to other things, those of us who left. Um, so definitely it was, the, it was the defining United States uh, exposure that you need to become a worldwide, worldwide uh, um, uh, rec you know, recognized as, uh, you have your work recognized worldwide, you gotta be in the States, you gotta be in the States yeah. to be recognized worldwide and this was, SNL was the main, was the main exposure and after that many great things came, a, a wonderful career I had in in the uh, picture business. Uh, a little bit. Let, let's start with one of your favorite films, for whatever reason, that you loved. Well, uh, I think the, the one that I always kind of go to is, uh, is Blues Brothers, because we did everything on that. We were writer, you know, we, we had to write, I had to write, act, dance, be a musician, uh, you know, uh, act in a production capacity. Um, so that one there, we were just the multi-skilled. Multi uh, was there any doubt from the people who were making that film that you could pull that off? Oh, like there was much doubt. Oh yeah, we we were at, you know it, it was not it was not a favorite project at Universal uh, at the time uh, at the senior senior executive level. At the mid executive level, we had two champions there named Sean Daniel and Tom Mount, who've gone on to great careers, and they championed the Blues Brothers, and they. They made sure that upstairs was okay with it, even all the way through as we exceeded our $28 million budget, which was pretty, pretty bad at the time. But today, that's routine. Are you kidding me? 28, they spend that on an independent film today. Was that craft services? Or <laughs> that, now that's craft, that's craft services on an Avengers movie is uh, $28 million. But What was the pushback? Was it like... Well, uh, budget and budget and... Um, and then uh, once we got the movie edited, we went out to exhibitors and they said, this will never play in the South because it's got black people in it. It won't play. You've got you're, you're celebrating African American culture, and 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 we, we won't play in the in the, the black houses. So, it didn't. And so what? It played around the world. It played in places where people are not ignorant, uh, uh, you know, and uh, and and of, of of that culture, you know. Did you get pushback like you were trying to do too much? You know, this, you know, the you know, being the musician. And no, no, no. That was all. That was all fine. That was all expected. No, you're going to do. You know, you're going to be paid that. You're going to do all of that and, and, and be happy about it, you know. But it was just, we, we, we went, we, the, the audience that loved it found it, and now, of course, it's, it's, a, it, it's pretty, uh, it's a triple A. I, I, I like that one. 
couple little movies, you know. Some good uh, ones too. Blues Brothers. Some good, some good, yeah. yeah. Well, mostly good. I mean, you sort yeah. of defined, uh, you still are a big movie star, but like, as I remember you, well, you know, fortunate from working 80s and actor, 90s. I'd say. Yeah. Fortunate working actor. Yeah, not doing that so much these days, more focused on other things, but uh, still play the music with Jimmy here now 40 years later, after the Blues Brothers went on SNL, Belushi's brother and I still play concerts with the hat, the shades, do the character, we do the music. That's pretty enduring for a mark right there. That's we amazing. Some years, yeah. You guys do tours every year? What's we, we tour, um, we, uh, we tour, you know, uh, maybe 15, 20 gigs a year, maybe sometimes more. And, you know, when the economy is good, because, you know, we're not cheap. We're 12 in the band. And so let's go and unpack some of this stuff. You know, people who watch this, they're, they're entrepreneurs. They're running their own businesses. Um, or maybe they're working for the man right now, and they aspire to do something like what you've done is, mm -hmm. you know, to taking a leap, and you've done something different out of your, maybe your comfort zone. Um, and a lot of people will say, uh, maybe they'll get stuck because they're afraid of failure. And some will even say, you know, failure is not an option. But we've talked about it on the show a lot how failure has to be an option, right? You have to get it wrong in order to get it right. I mean, some people win the lottery, that happens. Catch the Hail Mary pass, fine. But like most of us, we're making mistakes, failing fast until we get it right. So can you think about maybe even some of those from the early days, things that you got really wrong in order to kind of course correct and get it right? Um, with regards to the, the Crystal Head Vodka, uh I mean, that, I, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but I kind of see your path, your journey as like basically going to school, you know, school of hard knocks. Still is. Right? Learning all these things mm -hmm. to get you to the point where you mm -hmm. could launch a beverage business mm -hmm. like that, right? Uh, a vodka business. Um, what are some of the early mistakes that you learned, whether it's about, you know, human interaction or? The first, I, I would, well, you know, it, it, for us it went, it's gone pretty smoothly for the manufacturing. It really has. Um, our product is different from many of the lesser priced vodkas out there because we really take the time to, uh, to, to put quality into the bottle. So, and let's back up one step. So why vodka? Um, okay, well, let me, let me get your first question out of the way first. Where, we, where I failed was in, uh, in hiring personnel that were trouble. And, and my failure was in realizing shortly after the hire that they were trouble, but keeping them on out of compassion and trying to give them another chance. Were these friends or? No, these were professionals. And there, was, there were three of them that, that just finally had to go after a length of time with the company. And my failure was not, an, not wasn't that I didn't recognize, wow, he, the way he's talking to that, employee or the way they talked that, or the way they talk on the phone or their manner or, whoa, or what what was that comment that just came out I knew they were something wrong shortly after the hire but you know you want to give them a check in, a second chance you know a second chance you know second chance I give you a second chance I give you a third chance okay I give you the fourth chance I give you a fifth chance and it was giving them too many chances where real damage was being done to the company people weren't returning calls they were they were distressed at the abrasiveness of some of these people you know, and suppliers and clients were being turned off, so that had to end. So that was a major, major failure on my part to recognize that, and it could have really caused failure. Well, why do you think company. you did that? Because you have a nice guy syndrome, or? I, I think so, I think so. I, I, I think I just, you know, I saw the worth in these people, and I thought, you know, 
geez, surely you know, there's so much of worth there. But I then, you know, um, uh, a very good friend of mine said, you know, he said, look, if, if, you're, if their parents couldn't correct your, their behavior, you're not going to be able to. So I'm not their parent, and I'm, I'm just, you know, their employer. So that was, that was a major failure. As far as the, the manufacturing, why vodka? Okay. Um, my, um, one of my mentors and one of my great friends is, is one of the greatest men in America in finance and, in, and everything else. His name is J.P. DeJoria. I think you know who he is. Paul Mitchell Hair Care and Patron Tequila. Well, um, I was, I, I was, you know, to, for a great business, you got to find a need that somebody needs something. Well, Canada, the entire nation of Canada, needed better tequila than what they were getting. There were two major worldwide brands that Canadians could consume. Only two in the country, no more. I thought, wow, why can't I bring Patron to Canada? You know, why? Well, I, I, and bring it. Bring it so I can have it in my dock and have a margarita. And I bring it to the little government liquor store in my village. I don't care about the rest of the country, but I'd love to have it. And JP said to me, "No, Dan, we were at House of Blues, another company he started, helped start, and one that I helped start. We were there drinking at the bar, and he was one of our first uh, financiers there. And he said, "Have you ever tried the Patron?" I said, well, "I don't have good memories of tequila." He said, "Try this," and I drank it warm, smelt it, it was beautiful, smoky, smooth. I thought, wow, I'd love to get this in Canada. And I said, can I bring it up to my local little store? Can we arrange a special license? He said, no, we have to bring it to the whole country together. So I brought it up to oh, Canada, yeah. Uh, yeah, and we got the license to do that. And over the last, you know, over, over the 10 years that we had it, um, um, now Bacardi purchased the company from JP for $4.5 billion. So they don't need a, an agent anymore up in Canada. They have their own agency. But I, we, we built it into the number one luxury brand in Canada, 10% of luxury sales of tequila. And now Canadians get to drink, drink Patron. So I, I established that. I'm looking around for other categories. I look at the, the beverage alcohol uh, you know, industry as a whole. And I look at vodka. And vodka, believe it or not, is a $50 billion worldwide industry, if you count. So I thought, well, okay, it'd be nice to get a sliver of that. How do we do that? How do we dif differentiate? How do we make it different from all the other products that, that are out there? And I began to research and find out that vodka, a lot of manufacturers in the beverage alcohol industry, not only vodka, they add, um, they add glyceride, which is a lipid. You know, it's a, it's a sugar. We all have it in this, but they synth synthesize it. And they add something called sometime glycerol, now, glycerol is one thing and a food additive. Glycol is a cousin to that, and that's the coolant that they put in the Spitfire engine in World War II, you know. So they add glyceride. Now, why do they do that? Well, they put it in there to sweeten the mash. So, so, so many vodka companies, they, they put additives in there, and, and they do it, they do it, it's really weird. You think, okay, well, you're a vodka company. You're, you're serving your consumer a quality product, hopefully. It's going to have a nice mash. Going to have, it's got to have beautiful water. It's going to be well distilled and well filtered. Why, why would you need to put additives in there? And they go, well, people in the industry say, well, you know, it's to mask the smell of the alcohol. Shelf life or maybe something? No, no, it's to mask the smell of the alcohol. What? Wait a minute. Don't we have nice water and a good, aren't you saying your product has nice water and nice mash and good filtration and good distillation? Why do you need to mask? your ethyl alcohol or whatever it is. Well, you know, the consumer, the consumer wants it mass. Oh, so, mm-hmm. And then I said, what else do they put in? Well, they put terpenes in there. That's like terpene, turpentine. Well, again, everything has, many things have terpenes Sounds in there. Kind of bad. Well, it's lemonine, which is a citrus oil. They don't put enough to kill you, hurt you, but 
citrus oil can be a caustic cleanser in its raw form. So I thought, why do they put that in there? Well, it's to add a viscosity, to add a, a viscosity. Well, wait a minute. I thought you had a good mash, nice water, good display. Wouldn't you have a nice natural viscosity? Well, you know, again, it's masked alcohol taste. I said, okay, all right, what else do you add? Well, we add cane sugar sometimes. So I said, what if we do a vodka that's a pure spirit? No glyceride, no terpenes, no cane sugar. What would that taste like? Well, it's going to taste like alcohol. Yeah, we're having cocktails here. We tried it. And now, today, I can tell you that Crystal Head's notes are as follows. There's no terpenes. There's no glycol, glyceride. There's no sugar. And our notes are sweet, vanilla, dry, crisp, with a kick of heat off the finish. We've won more awards in the world than any other product. We have 11 of them. And we won the Prodexpo in Moscow, Russia. Wow. 400 beverages, excellent taste in a contest we didn't even enter. Yeah, a Canadian wins a in Canadian Moscow. A Canadian wins for vodka in Moscow. Wonderful, wonderful story there. And it's because we stayed with our conviction that we can do it. We can, we can do this and we can do it without uh, an additive, any additives, and it's going to taste great in a cocktail or taste great straight. You open up most, uh, I don't name names, but a lot of other most, you know, they smell like perfume or they smell like nothing. You open up mine, you'll have a soft, clean ethyl alcohol smell. It's just C2H5, C2H506, and Newfoundland water. Why Newfoundland water? The original glacial aquifer from Newfoundland. It was the Wisconsin glacier. It, sit right, it sat there above the earth 16,000 years ago, 800 feet above the earth. And that water melted into the porous rock, which is Newfoundland. And we draw our water right from underneath the still, right up into the distillery. We are also the only vodka in the world that is manufactured by the last state-owned still in the product, in the world. And of course, the head, at the, as a gift, Anywhere where we can take a special advantage of our special package. Nobody has a mini like ours either. Uh, we have these great opportunities that other brands do not have. You know, you, you know, other brands of spirits don't have a special spike at Halloween. Yeah. yeah. I love that story. What really fascinates me and I want to understand more is how did you do that, Dan? I mean... I took my daughter's college fund and I, I stripped it... And, actually took all of the money. Well, I mean, the money part, the I feel like these days, money is easy to find when you have something great. You have a great product. Mm -hmm. But you have to give it away. If you want investors, you have to give it away. I wanted to own, I, my family wanted to own this. So that was primarily where we started, was just by self-capitalizing. Okay. Yeah. So that was the first step, you know, uh, in terms of getting it manufactured. We start, I, it started with a sketch on a, on a piece of paper. But hold on, hold on. Hold on. So, I mean, what is again, what is really fascinating and curious to me is like, you have no business really, even um, before, and I, and I say this as the, um, as the skeptic in most of our heads, mm -hmm. you, know, um, you know, here you are someone with, with a little bit of experience, you know, bringing Patron to Canada, right? Yeah. And then you do, you have the- mm, But I, House of Blues, we started House of Blues before we bought Patron okay. in. So I, I was a co-founder at House of Blues, a co-investor. I sat on the board with uh, Aries Capital Management. Our first investor was Harvard Endowment. I, I solicited the, uh, the, the investment there along with Dr. Isaac Tigrit, the founder of the company. It was on the board until it was sold to Live Nation. 
Um, so um, we had a great board to uh, the um, Kit Goldsbury of, from Pace Picante Sauce. Yeah. We had the uh, Tony Reschler from, from Ari's group. Yeah. Uh, well, hold on. Here's the, here's the question great, I'm getting. Great at. people on the board. So yeah. You know. Well, and you're being very modest. But I get what I want to know. I think there's a lesson here, and I think maybe you can you can give it, which is, here you are, someone who you know basically has a very creative writing behind the camera, in front of the camera background, which then you transitioned into more of a proper business person. You know, an entrepreneur doing new things. You partner with your friend JP and you start this thing and you, you yeah. have some success. You start House of Blues, whatever. Um, but like, but honestly, like, how did you do that? And, and the, I ask because I think a lot of people get stuck in like, oh, I'm the, I'm the teacher. I'm that guy. I'm the teacher. And that's all I do for the rest of my life. Or, you know, uh, you know, I'm the whatever, you know, fill in the blank, whatever your occupation is. And yet you seem to be able to kind of reinvent yourself each time, like a new iteration of Dan, and do these things, like how did you do that? I think it's finding the right properties. And, I mean, and did you it, study? Like, did you like dive into it and just like, did you I, learn it's, everything? It's just in terms of instinct, finding the right properties. For instance, when Isaac Tigret came to me and said, Blues Brothers, it's a dormant brand. Nobody, you know, the movies are over, the records are over, but there's something left there. This is like, and he's, this is something that, that people can relate to. They know it. It's worldwide. It's famous. It's a franchise. Let's start some clubs. Let's start. We'll, 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 we'll start with one and see how we get to that. Would you and Judy lend your mark to that enterprise? And I, I, it just struck me as this could work. This could work. I felt to myself, this could work. So not only did we lend the property uh, uh, to him and license it, but I invested and we had a great history and we, we sold it to Live Nation, successfully saving 3,000 jobs. Was House of Blues the greatest business success I've, over, uh, I've ever been associated with for myself? Maybe not, but certainly for the employees, for Live Nation who owns it now, for the towns that have House of Blues. It's a tough business, but we managed to sustain it, keep it alive. Planet Hollywood went under bankrupt. Hard Rock went under bankrupt. Rainforest Camp Cafe went under bankrupt, not us. We stayed alive because of that tremendous board of directors that we had that hung in there till the very end and, and kept, kept the brand alive. So that was, that was House of Blues. Then with Patron, well, this great me. smoky tequila. Again, another property unexploited in a territory. I thought to myself, Patron, unexploited in a territory. I, how can I hook myself to that, and how can I get it into Canada, and how can I, how can I do that? That was, that was Patron. With the, with the head, my friend John Alexander, I, I was talking to him about the success we were having in the Patron business in Canada. He said, I always wanted to do a, a tequila and a skull. And I said, well, that would be disloyal to JP. I couldn't do a tequila and a skull. It's a brilliant idea, and it was done. Uh, that's a whole other story. That's a trademark dress infringement case that we won in federal court. But I said, no, you know, I, 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 I can't do that because JP has brought me Patron into Canada with me. I, I could, I'd betray him. I said, okay, well, show me the, show me the bottle. We'll, 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 maybe I'll play around with that. So I thought in a couple of months he would come up with a design. I turned my, my back and watched the snow come down uh, by his loft there in New York City, and he... In two minutes, he handed me a sketch, and, he, and this was it. And, and it had a little grin, like a little, it's a happy skull. Yeah. I said, this is brilliant. This looks like the Mitchell Hedges skull. I, and I looked at it. I said, I know exactly what to put in here. 
a non-additive vodka. Purity. How could you put a non-polluted substance in this bottle? And this package sells purity and cleanliness and enlightened drinking perfectly. Yeah. You see, so it, it was finding the property, yeah. finding the property and, and being convicted that that would work and I could get my name and put my capital behind it. Smart, intuitive, sometimes overlooked. I think it's a very subtle but very important lesson about, well, some people call it white space, you know, what's not being done. Mm -hmm. You know, Steve Jobs is famous for, you know, this uh, innovation where he created, even going back to Henry Ford, who's, who gets credited with that phrase, if I would have asked the people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. here he gives them, you know, this assembly line, you yeah. know, more efficient way to produce cars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to go back to Blues Brothers for a second. Uh, it sounds like also you started small. You didn't dive in a giant leap. You said, let's do one. Um, well, with, um, with, uh, with House of Blues, we opened in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Well, but even with when you lent your name oh. and you started doing, you know, maybe it was House of Blues first or it was a Blues Brothers uh, iteration, right? It, it, well, we, yeah, the Blues Brothers bar and, the, and then our image, we license it to, to, uh, to Live Nation and we always had licensed it to House of Blues, yeah. So was it one of those things, because it struck me that you said, I want to try one first. Was that try one House of Blues? Or was that one House of Blues, yeah. Let, let's try the concept out and let's not do it on too big a scale because let's be reasonable here. Let's go out and raise some private money. So Isaac goes out with me and we, and, and we, we raise some money. I don't know, I think it was... A, First round of about three million, private, no big houses involved. And so we found a little location in Cambridge, Massachusetts on Harvard Square, an old bar that had been there. And uh, we, we tried out our, our whole theme, the, the decor made by folk artists, the blues and R&B theme playing on the jukebox, the Louisiana cuisine all skewed towards that reverence for the South, the African-American songbook, and for the folklore of the South. The diamond plate on the bars, the old the John Bach thrones with the locks, the, the, the hammered tin uh, you know, uh, that you see, the feeling of the Indian uh, and, the, and the, the art, the, the, the uh, you know, uh, East Indian art, and, uh, and all of that. We, we tried it all out, and the place was packed from the time we opened till we had to move, um, and then Next door to us was a little red house, and who was in that little red house? The guys from Harvard Endowment. And they ate burgers and drank beer and came to our club, and Isaac you know, saw them coming and going and sort of, well, well you know, we may be interested in expanding this. And from that, we ended up expanding it. There's 13 of them now. A couple of follow-up questions. So yeah. one, why did you choose Cambridge Mass? Uh, an academic community, who, uh, a community that would uh, love and accept blues and R&B right away, knew what it was. Sophisticated, ate and drank a lot, and sophisticated and could accept Louisiana cuisine, understand the folk art on the walls, and also um, could, um, could uh, you know, uh, uh, relate to the, the music culture that we were trying to celebrate, right, instantly. There was no, it was a shorthand. We didn't have to explain what we were doing. Well, it also seems really smart that you had the foresight to just Start small, because I think that's another lesson that maybe we can distill from this, is that, and, and I don't know the whole history of um, Planet Hollywood, but as I remember it, you know, uh, whenever that era was, they exploded, you know? Well, they had public money right away, and we never had public money ever to, to date with House of Blues. It never was a public company. We had contemplated an IPO, but that was, we'd, we had four or five of them open by the time we contemplated the IPO, and then... 
you know, we had Mary Meeker and Henry Blodgett looking at the company, and then all of a sudden it comes to the year 2000, and there's, oh, we're not getting our phone calls returned, and then, you know, 9-11, uh, the dot-com bomb, 9-11. It's amazing we survived in the hospitality industry to today where we've got 13 of them still uh, open. Just, it's just amazing. We fought a lot to, to keep it alive, but... Uh, well, I think if I can pull out something just so that I see of it, it's, it seemed very smart that you went in to test the market. And you proved yeah. the model. Yeah, it was. It was building. We built a prototype. Yeah. That's what we did. We built a prototype. And um, I don't know that, uh, I guess the only comparable, I could think of Starbucks, although they, they didn't start out to be a big chain. Their prototype was also something that was just, just a great product. They tried it out and they had the... You know, they had the people of Seattle going there for what twelve years before it became a yeah. it became an, a, a well known enterprise. Well, you know, so, yeah. we, maybe we're you know we're underestimating, but I I seen here this a lot. People who have what they think is a brilliant idea, they rush out, they you know cr create a bunch of them, and they put them up for sale, and mm -hmm. and there's crickets, like mm -hmm. no one comes, and mm -hmm. they wonder why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's because they didn't stop to either test the market or prove the market or. They didn't, you know, like you were kind of have that vision for like, what's missing from the market? What's not here? Oh, a, a pure vodka. Mm -hmm. They didn't stop to think about the white space, you know, what's not, what's not there, what people really want. Well, that's what drives a great business if you can, if, if you can, if you can sell it to them uh, because they want it. And then if you can keep making them want it. You know, um, and uh, and do it legitimately. Yeah. yeah. So how do you now? Because you had mentioned before, one of the mistakes was finding good people or keeping good people. Mm -hmm. How have you fixed it? Like, how do you find good people now? Because I think that's a very common problem that a lot of people struggle with. How do I find the right team? Um, well, we're lucky. You know, basically we've got the same people from the time, partners from the time we started, and and some of the same personnel. Um, we just watch out for the flags that we we learned from the last time. Um, certainly, you know, uh, I think uh, just, I think affability, personal affability, the way one person treats another, it's very important. We have to have, we can't have a, can't have a bad, uh, you know, a, a bad uh, apple in the office, you know, you can't, can't have that. So uh, just, it's, it's, it's about how, you know, human deference is dealt with and, 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 and then of course skills, that the skills for whatever job we're hiring the person for, and record. You know, we, we got some great people uh, working for us now. We have a guy who managed Jack Daniels across Canada working for us now. See, Terrific. That, that, that's a really great point, too, because, you know, the, the order in which you just said that is, I think, really important, and maybe people have missed it. You said you want good people first, and then if they have skills, oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's amazing. Well, to hire someone, yeah, to hire someone, you want, you, you, you want that affability, that human deference, that, that, that you know, someone who's going to fit in and blend in and be a team player and not be detrimental uh, to anyone. And, and, uh, and we would look at the skill package second yeah. to, um, to, to, I think, personality and, uh, and, 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 you know, human respect, respect for other humans. Well, that's so on par with a lot of these top companies that we talk to, this, this idea of emotional intelligence mm -hmm. being first, and then, you know, the, the, the skills and all that being second. Emotional intelligence um, is becoming so much more you get a important. Better, you get a better business out of it. If your people are happy, yeah. 
and, 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 you know, and not feel that they're working for some tyrant all the time, I think productivity is it's bound to improve. Well, and if you hire people, even if they're down the food chain, that have integrity, mm -hmm. who are hard workers, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it can come, tell me what your opinion is, it can come from the bottom up and it can come from the top down. Uh, well, top down is key too. You know, we, 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 have, to give, we have to be examples, you know, and, um, and that's something, you know, I think every executive works on that every, every day, yeah. So if we could go back um, to 20-year-old Dan, and let's put him in 2019 heading into 2000. But 20-year-old Dan is here now, don't you? This, my lizard brain, 20 years, I, I, it hasn't changed at all. It's just, uh, I'm just dragging around a, you know, a more uh, a bulky, bulkier corpse. I, I mean, I'm, I'm here, I'm here. I'm no, nothing has changed really in that my wife says, no growth, no growth. <laughs> you know, well, you're the same. You, you know, I'm sorry, that's me. So let's, let's pose it a different way. What advice do you give to younger people now, people who are, you know, graduating from high school, heading into college? What, what kind of career advice, if they want to pursue their dream, their passion, you know, do what they love to do, what do you, what do you tell them? Uh, well, I tell them to uh, prepare to basically, uh, for the first part of their lives, of their working lives, to prepare to work seven days a week, prepare to work 18 hours a day, you know, and, you know, do, and, and I say to them, if you're working for a company and you've just started and a terrible job comes up that no one else wants to do, you, you do that job, you do that job. When I worked for the Department of Public Works as a, a flex track mechanic, and a road surveyor, um, I remember there was an afternoon where we had to, go and cross-section the highway, and there was a massive crater in the middle of the highway filled with water. And the crew chief said, I need an elevation. I have to have an elevation there. And because this is, was in my nature, I, I, I started on the railway when I was 14 years old, uh, loading boxcars and, and doing night shift and working double shift. I worked driving a mail truck. And when no one wanted the winter job of, can somebody show up in this blizzard, I'd get the call at four in the morning and I'd go. So the guy looks at, I look at this hole and I go, well, that's no problem. Get me some rocks. I weighted down my rubber boots. I took the rod, the survey rod, and I walked right down. And I held my breath. I walked to the bottom of that seven-foot hole, and I got the reading for him, waved the rod like I was supposed to. I got a reading all the way down until I was underwater and back up. You know? So that exemplifies the commitment that you have to have, that I always had. Do the dirty jobs. And, and people notice that. People notice, wow. Mm, yeah, and the other thing on the, on the film uh, business, I've, I've had a lot of people come into the film business, and I've had them hired as PAs. I've had them, you know, a couple of them gone on to careers as producers. I said, never be seen sitting down on the set. Never be seen sitting down. The actors can sit, the directors can sit, the cinematographer can sit, any all, but don't you sit down. If you're a PA on a movie, you're an assistant. You're there, never be seen sitting down. Always be seen standing. Always be available. If you got to sit down, you got to take a break. Do it in the woods, do it behind a trailer, never be seen in a reclining position. And generally for all of us in business and in life, is Dan there please? No, he's asleep. Standard instruction in my house. Um, no, he can't come to the phone right now. Never admit the lion is sleeping, never, never. Never admit the lion's sleeping, never, you know. You're always up, you're always awake. He's not right here right now, I can't get him right now, but oh, uh, oh, he's on the code or he's on, no, that's a human weakness. 
Are you kidding? Elimination of waste and sleep? We don't do that. We're always up. Yeah.